Good afternoon. Uh, just uh, I want to say that uh, I have been, I met some of many of you this uh, last Monday, and this has been a, a wonderful week uh, here. And I would like to thank uh, uh, Oxford uh, University, Balliol College, and uh, um, the Humanitas program for this occasion. And also, I would like to thank uh, Christine, Paul, Natalia Bugakova, and uh, Shimus Perry for organizing everything for us. It's great to be here. I uh, will be very uh, pragmatic and address the topic of uh, pictures and text um, in the space of the museum. Um, based on my experience uh, with uh, producing texts for museums. Uh, the first thing, uh, uh, so what I'm bringing here today is more a provocation, something to start the conversation this afternoon. I apologize, but the first thing I want to say is how much I hate writing about art. For me, it is one of the most painful jobs I have to do as a museum art, museum art work. I always keep the feeling that I would be betraying something related to the artwork I see, to the experience I have with it, and to the public, the viewer, the reader, uh, who expects to have some clue, at least, in how to see it and what to consider while seeing it. It is quite clear for me that when I look uh, to an artwork, not necessarily something I like, it provides me an impression that evokes something with a unique aura, a feeling, an emotion, that for sure I cannot describe in words without referring to all details and parts that constitute the observed picture. It would be like I would have to do the work again or exhibit it entirely. Something like redoing the entire work again and again. There's always a gap between the moment one gets amazed, surprised, or horrified by an image, a vision, a picture, and the intellectual, rational effort to translate it into words. We always lose something because when we put things in words, we already domesticate that emotion. We brought it into a common level, the text, and what it, it interpretates to find a common field where the writer and the reader could come along. Our most particular feelings, our personal imagination, might be too strong, too controversial, too wild for the social space of the writing and reading the ethical and moral, moral principle that orients the practice of mediating, interpreting an artwork. It seems to me a sort of denial of visual imagination in favor of a discourse that makes art a social service a common benefit. 
It was to remember that many of the pioneers in, cura in curating contemporary art in the way we do today were not good writers. They are not known for their texts, but by their attitudes of embrace art production and transforming it mainly in exhibitions to be seen. Pontus Rutten, Harold Zeman, Eddie De Wilde, and Susanna Guess, Suzanne Guess, to mention a few. After them, it seems that uh, the text at exhibition became a matter in keeping the control on the way people must perceive things. The works are no longer there in their integrity with their possibilities of breaking and leaking new contents, providing an expected experience, disruptive narratives. But this is what I like, but this is what I like, sorry. But this is what I like, not what I am expected to do. As a museum professional, I have to write. What is the role of the text inside the museum, though? Of course, we all agree about the museum as research space and the domain of a discipline that is art, hi art history. As such, the work has to follow a certain methodology, present rigorous procedures in relation to the reference it brings together, consistency with the genealogy of the field. So, museum became part of the academic practice, producing exhibition, texts, and publications that are scholarly or oriented, aiming to belong or to contribute to the development of the discipline, improving and extending, extending the knowledge of it. And we all agree about the museum's contribution to create and consolidating the discipline. But in regard to contemporary art, it supposes a little difference. I think the text in museums, I mean in the exhibition walls or labels, should be more an, an extension of the proposed experience by the work. Today, we tend to explain everything based on the context where art emerge, new work are produced. We tend to bring them into a more accessible territory where the interpretation remains a sort of truth about uh, the work, justifying their existence. We should be more careful. Instead of offering assertive phrases and ideas, it seems to me the text should be a counterpoint to the artwork, proposing something more pushing ahead the viewer's experience. Today, we tend to give or deliver everything to the visitor, leaving little for him or her imagination. If the work is intriguing, the text has to be the same. Texts in museum tend to be a facilitator instead of a, uh, a facilitator instead of a challenger, as all good work do, all art good artwork do. The text has to be amalgamated to them, poetic, open. It has to provide clues and not to try to explain everything, draining all possible, all possible ambiguity carried out by the works. One thing I have learned about this topic work, uh, working with contemporary, sorry, my computer here. Come here. Where are you? Okay. One thing I have learned. Sorry, sorry about that. 
One thing I have learned about this topic, working with contemporary art, is that the shortest and concis cons uh, concisest text is much more efficient than how long dissertation we can launch in exhibiting uh, in the exhibition space. In the year 2000, I did with Adriano Pedrosa an exhibition at the Reina Sofia Museum entitled Friccione, Frictions. It was a historical show on Latin American art presenting a narrative of the art from the, con the continent. It was articulated in three topics, the landscape, the people, and the history. Bringing together works from the colonial period to the current art production, the show, instead of curatorial texts, presented fragments of Latin American literature produced by authors from the same period of the artist. It was not that those fragments would explain the works or reinforce the curatorial narrative. It was instead an, an strategy to highlight the elliptical movements, the elliptical timing in the galleries, uh, having works and texts from different historical periods and moved in time, uh, in time proposed by the curatorial strategy. It was not intended to complete the historical perspective proposed by the curatorial strategy, but to increase and to qualify the reference and parameters on the level of interpretation left to the public. Thank you. <laughs> My glass. Sorry. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to respond to a couple of things that were said um, previously and then try to, in a much, in a way, referring very specifically to works that I've made over the years, to look at some of the questions and some of the possibilities uh, surrounding the idea of image and text and their combination and relationship to each other. But I want to start with the, um, the question of who tells the best stories as a starting point for the interconnectedness and necessary failure at attempts to pin down the relationships between images and text. In terms of the battle between painting and poetry and the other arts, Rembrandt in his studio had a number of assistants and his assistants were all pressed into service to pose for the different religious and historical paintings that he would be doing and different uh, students in the studio would take different positions and together they'd compose a tableau and then he or other students would make sketches of these tableaus. Later on, great actors like Garrick and other actors would go and hunt of prints of English, of Italian paintings and of paintings of Rembrandt specifically to study the gestures in the paintings to see what they should be doing as actors. So you had artists pretending to be actors so that actors could follow and try to, and it becomes a complete intertwining and circling of where the storytelling begins and ends. But I want to start also following up with what Estrella was talking about of the necessary conflict of the self that is implicit in writing and 
thinking about, about art. And this has to do something about the nature of truth in autobiography, the verifying of truth, um, performances of omission, and the vexed relationship between truth or fiction in either writing about art or thinking about art, or in this case, making art. This is about a four minute film and we'll <coughs> watch this briefly. This interview for the New York Studio School is conducted on Sunday, the 3rd of October at 9.15 p.m. 9.05 p.m. Now, we have three minutes, so please keep your answers succinct, to the point, and make them accessible to a general public and audience that is listening. Can you describe your life as an artist? I mean, can you rather say what it was that you did today to give us some sense of how you fill your hours between waking and sleeping every day? I mean, can you tell us about what? Okay. What I mean, if there was inspires enough time, you? I mean, I would be able how are so many different things that one could begin to spin out for everyone here? But it's just that there's such a short to explain how one gets from. He's not saying anything that's interesting at all. I mean, he's not talking about truth or truth and beauty or about mystic truths that are revealed by the artist to the, to the compulsion. He's talking about mayonnaise. Tabasco sauce. All right, let's talk, let's talk about inspiration. I mean, would you say that your inspiration is, comes from Skies as coupled colored what? as a brindled cow. That's Hopkins. Gerald I Manning. know it's Hopkins. I have read everything that you have read and more. All right, here's a question. Can one teach art? Yes. No. I write that down. No. I mean, either you have the ability to make art or you don't. Would you agree? No. I write down. Yes. I mean, what makes you tick? I mean, can we get one word of truth out of you? We'll wait here to hear the answer. I will outwait you. Bitter year for bitter year. Okay, all right, all right. Um, at least can you describe how you make your work? I mean, perhaps it's, perhaps it's like um, an image that you have in your head and you start at the top 
and you pull this image, this image comes closer and closer towards you? Or, or do you start with a blank sheet of do you start with a blank sheet of of paper and then slowly you find this intermediate membrane between yourself, yourself and the world that enables you to navigate your way. Okay, I want to respond a bit to what Eva was saying about the problem of wall texts, of pictures and the texts that accompany them in museums. And I think it's, a, it's an impossible task. It is a task that is destined and doomed for a necessary and inevitable failure. But as Beckett said, one has to do it again, fail again, and fail better. <laughs> and it's... I think it is that because there are, just from my experience, and I'm sure we've found, there's no doubt that when there is a wall text, it is very hard to resist it. And there are very few wall texts that don't elucidate a lot of things about the picture. But it is also clear that there is a payoff between the amount of reading you do and the amount of looking you do. And that the looking you do after reading is very different to the looking. And even though one longs for it in the explication, there is also something that is lost in the looking. It becomes ordered and structured and directed in a different way to, done to, to that which the painting or drawing provides, which of necessity has a kind of random movement of your eyes. However carefully people try to track or predict the eye movement. Diderot wrote these long essays about if you were looking at a particular painting, this is the route your eye would follow to make sense of it, to turn a single image into a linear narrative of different events and thoughts. And in fact, as I was explain, explained to me at dinner on Monday night by someone who is studying this question, when they've done scientific studies of what your eye does, it doesn't follow Diderot's path at all. There's a much more chaotic appropriation of the picture, and then we reconstruct the picture, if we're writing or talking about it, into a kind of narrative that does it. So, what Eva was saying is right. That becomes very impossible to simply describe what it is seeing, even though one longs for some of that explanation. But it's also difficult to imagine a text that has its own independent existence as a wall text to a picture. I can understand a combination of an image and a text together that together kind of constitute a work. And there are some writers that I would be very sympathetic to to say, yes, the writing can be next to the picture in the gallery, but to automatically assume that writing that goes off at a tangent helps you see the picture. It may make you aware of the whole process you have to look at. So I think it's one of the things that, I, I mean, I long, I'm very happy for a different kind of writing to be in wall texts, and I think that the wall text will still have a different kind of failure, and we live with and enjoy and live inside that, that failure. But it is that moment in which writing ceases to be purely clarificatory, where it becomes uh, an element of 
a layer of what you're looking at, that I'm interested in images and texts that go together. And what I have here, which we'll run through very briefly, but we can come back and speak in more length later on, is just I trawled through my images to see different moments when over the last 30 years there have been images and text. And at a certain point I realized that it's very hard to find images which don't have some text somewhere in them. So ranging from this, which was a drawing from a part of a theater set for a production done in the mid-1980s, in which the theater set consisted of magazine advertisements enlarged and painted, painted large scale. To much more recent theater designs, this is also a design for the backdrop of a theater production, in which the surface is a surface for projection. It's a screen for projections to happen on top of it. But the bits of text came in, and the bits of text already here, by the, or by the time we've reached here, are partly notes to myself of thoughts in the, that will be in the production, of riddles, very much as riddles to a, an audience, should they pick up on them, of what could this possibly mean in the context of the opera that is being said? What is the comment that is being made uh, in relation to the main event on stage? So in that sense, they function kind of as marginal notes. And that's obviously a way in which images are often used in, uh, uh, text is often used in images. So this could be a simply a series of lines, of abstract lines, of taking a line for a walk. But in fact, it was me trying to trace down as clearly as I could what the movements and walking was around the studio prior to making a drawing. So it's a, it's a record of an event, and then the record of the event becomes the drawing itself. And so the writing, which is both an explanation, also becomes part of the graphic material in the drawing. So that's one way in which the, the writing comes into it. To look at other ways, this is a, certainly in the modernist lexicon, collage with its combination of different images of torn elements put together becomes another vital and essential place in which we see text and image wedded together, not simply for the visual look, but at this stage in the start of the 20th century, taking a lot of the insights of Freud and other psychologists of the chaos that reigns inside our heads, of the mixture of phrases, of the words we're about to say but hold back from saying, of the multiple texts we live in. If you think particularly times you are checking what you're going to say, if you're worried you're going to put your foot in your mouth or you're going to say something offensive, you double check what you're going to be saying, which is to say there's a whole sewer, soup of texts, of words, from which you're picking out something carefully. Most of the time, most of the time we rely on some unconscious part of our brain to make the transition between an impulse we have to say something and the construction of the words, the grammar, the vocabulary which suddenly emerges out of us. But working with texts in images in a way is an acknowledgement of the complexity and the underbelly of words that we, that we live in. This was a, a tapestry, part of a tapestry, the tapestry being a way of literally sewing together these different images. So what starts off as many different kinds of pieces of paper of different shapes and scale and thicknesses get given a uniformity of a final statement by the activity of the weaving of the ideas.
There is a way in which we saw so within the modernist idiom used through posters, through headlines, through all the typographical devices of a world of mechanical reproduction to having words absolutely melded to drawings, not as explications of them as in the earlier ones, but as part of the graphic language, a, a, a weight of tone, a directional line, all as part of the vocabulary of, of drawing in which one obviously has both things. One has both an associative set of meanings that come with texts and also the way it simply exists as a set of shapes, a reference to a kind of thinking, which you can understand very easily if you think of the pleasure of looking at calligraphies or typographies of languages we don't understand. It's not to say that all pleasure in that disappears if you don't understand the specific words. It's obviously very different looking at a piece of Chinese calligraphy if you understand exactly what it's saying, but it's not as if we exempt from that, from all pleasure by not having that understanding. In the same way here, the meaning associated with the words is one element, but not the only element of them in the, in the drawings. This gets extended and it's used sometimes in costume design, which is an interesting echo of the photograph we saw from uh, that Estrella showed us, the man dressed up, of what it is to have a performance of nudity as well as the nudity. Um, to another example of costume design, where it takes the language of text of Russian uh, constructivism and the kind of way in which the typography was used as part of the drawings, here used in the costume, and the costume used as the basis for the animation in the background, which also has to do with the disintegration of different thoughts and ideas that were germane to the production that this was uh, going to be used in. This was just a quick sketch that was never used or shown. It was a studio sketch and from which a more detailed choreography and um, costume design was made. And leading finally to some further works in which the idea of the text starts going back into the book, in which the book itself becomes not just a set of words and a text that exists, but a ground, like a canvas, in the way you would do an oil painting on a canvas ground and you would use gesso as the medium for which different ideas of perspective could be played out in its clarity, in the way you can glaze it, in the way you can allow uh, intensity of light to dissipate through thinner glazes to give an impression of depth. In the way that the oil canvas is about depth, there's a way in which a canvas of books or a background of books says in itself that the question of language and ideas is one of the meanings of the work, one of the key elements of it. So whether it's a book like this, which is the elimination of the of the words, or whether it is using an old um, book. And I must say, what a pleasure it is looking at the old libraries in Oxford. And I have to keep my hands in my pockets <laughs> and keep my bag zipped up and just look in case maybe there's some old bins where old dictionaries are being thrown out. Um, but none of my hints have fallen on receptive ears. I'm afraid to say. So this was a series of this was a series of drawings which became prints, 
which are, in a sense, texts. And they were texts that I was thinking about while writing a series of lectures, much like this one, a series of lectures I was doing last year. And they felt somewhere between the two of simply the pleasure of the red paint on this uh, 17th century book about the annals of the proceedings of a Franciscan monastery. Um, but it was also about saying within each word or each phrase, each phrase that was here represented a paragraph or a set of sentences that was part of the lecture. So it's not simply a random choice of letters and words, but it's also not essential that someone reading it understands fully the specific reference I was making. The, this body of work ends, and here I'll show one last thing which we will um, end with, of drawings inside books and in its current incarnation is being put back inside books. And where the book itself becomes the ground, the medium for the artwork to happen, where the idea of the text and the image absolutely overflows. So whether a text is an image or whether an image proceeds or follows it, it's allowed to have its space. And there's another third element which could come into the discussion later, and that has to do with sound and image and text. And I just have to... I showed on Monday, to finish the lecture, a fragment of a flipbook that is currently under construction. And I'll show a section of it again, but this time with a very different uh, soundtrack. And later on there are various other soundtracks that go with the same thing. But it's again a mixture of images and texts inside a book that float somewhere between being the ideas for the lecture. The texts and phrases were things I was thinking about in preparation for this week at Oxford but which also start to get their own independent life as the beginning of a film, and I have another few months to work and finish it before I'll show it properly, of a film in a book. Uh, maybe we'll start with, yeah.
Thank you. Thank you, Beth. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to check the microphones before we start. That's not working, is it? No, yes, it is now. Okay. We'll check that one. of actually trying to write about pictures actually are. And I think, Eva, you were talking about that in terms of a museum, that you know, it, it, it's very limited what you can actually do with the text. And in a way, it's a false sense of what the work of art is trying to express. So, I think, uh, first, I th yeah, when I say uh, that I hate writing, uh, it's because it's a painful uh, work. Uh, every time I start writing something, I said, why I accept that invitation, you know? Why I have to do this again, you know? But uh, there is a certain... Um, but the challenge is, uh, uh, or again, writing for the museum is, how you don't... Uh, how you make, uh, you produce a six accessibility based on text. To the work, you know, so it's like uh, it's not about uh, uh, talking what to see in the work, but uh, you are always interpreting the work. Mm -hmm. You are not uh, uh, because it's interesting. I, as I, I mentioned on Monday, I was I, I for three years I was trained as a, a I tried to be an artist, you know. So and then, but at the school I learned uh, is to look into the artwork with other by, uh, through other artists, you know. And I think that there is a, uh, you know, every time I work with some artist in a project, it's quite clear the difference, uh, the way the artist look into what he is doing or she is doing, and the way we curators look into the work. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's yeah. like a, and, uh, and there is this uh, very, uh, this gap, you know, so, and then it, uh, I always try to, uh, how to fill this, how, how you approximate, how you make things uh, uh, visible, yeah. not readable. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. That's the point, you know. I so think William wanted to respond. No, I, just to want, I, d I did want to say when you talk about the difference of looking between the. The difference of looking between the artist and the uh, curator, I mean, the, it's very often the case that with a good curator or critic or writer, there are things seen in the work which are different from what I've seen while making it. <coughs> and almost always the things which are interesting have been pointed out by someone who is not me, who has a different view. So I have an enormous understanding of the vital space for 
this looking, mm -hmm. wall text under pictures are just always complicated. I don't have any good solutions. <laughs> and I think that for me, it's as I said, I think it's an interesting space because one has to accept the necessary of good failure. <laughs> I, I like the idea of the failure, you know, it's because it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a good uh, uh, point, you know, that, that uh, you're going to start, but you're going to fail. You know, that's what is, that's the challenge to keep doing. But it's <laughs> so a good failure, though. So oh, the idea is that you yeah. have to keep trying to improve, I suppose, on that. Is that where you're coming from on your It's not about... No, it's about the fact of the failure or the gap between what you're hoping to and what's there to show that tension that exists between describing something and looking at something. Yeah. And it's to, it's, it's the very, if it's completely seamless, the text and the image, then one gets into a limited seeing without realizing what one is doing. And so a good text that makes you aware of what it is you're doing in the activity of reading or the activity of seeing is, is to be welcomed. Yeah, I think, I think the problem is probably that we, basically due to our training, we, we try to translate yes. artworks. And this is very wrong. I mean, you can translate into words something which is visual. I do agree with William. I think, you know, when I'm working with an artist and I, and I only accept writing text for artists that I have been, you know, devoted lots of time to think about, because if not, the text is going to be even worse than it usually <laughs> could be. And, and I think it's so intriguing, because I'm seeing things, and, you know, good friends say, well, I never thought of that, and I think, you know, that's not the problem. Uh, to me, the problem is the challenge of not trying to translate. Mm. You know, and I think this is probably due to our training. I mean, as, as historians, we have been trained to translate, to be the mm -hmm. mediator. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And this is the wrong thing, because I'm not mediating at all. I'm doing something, a different job, that has a different, you know, perspective and a different approach. And I think, you know, it's probably part of the discipline. That's why I was, you know, quoting the ethnographers. Mm. Somebody who has a problem of not being, of, of the consciousness of translation. Because we translate, but we believe we're facing truth and not translating. Do you, do you think that there's a difference between working with contemporary artists as you do and the historians of art who work with the art yes. of the past? Yes. Yes, there is. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, the difference is like, uh, okay, uh, is I try more, the more, okay, I'm, uh, I'm 60 years old today, uh, this year, so, uh, uh, now and um, uh, and I feel more free <laughs> to say things I, I didn't dare saying before. You know, so it's like <laughs> I think it's it's something you gain with age. But the thing is, uh, the historic the the, hist the history of art is a discipline. There's a methodology. There's a, a field. There's a lot of reference. There's a, it's a constituted field. You know, and you take part of that. You research. You you spend time. You spend years reading, studying, uh, reflecting. You know, to produce something. While we we work uh, uh, with contemporary art, the more and more for me it's clear that the text we do is as fictional as the artwork. 
I'm not sure I fully agree with you either. I know that. What I mean is that I was thinking of uh, brilliant examples of classical art historians. And I would quote Professor Gombrich for one thing, and then I would uh. quote Abby Warburg. And they face classical art in a, in a kind of a contemporary, with a contemporary approach. I mean, I think it's a matter of attitude. I mean, some, mm. artists, some, some art historians working with contemporary art are very classical and even very boring, if I may say so. But I think some <coughs> classical art historians are watching, uh, gazing, and, and looking at uh, works of art in a very kind of lively, uh, with a very kind of lively attitude, with a very kind of contemporary attitude. I mean, if Abby Warburg wouldn't have, been, have that attitude, he would have never seen that you know, brilliant um, uh, interpretations. Mm -hmm. I think it's a matter of attitude. I, I believe that, you know, you, I, because if not, one can say, okay, you're into contemporary art, so you're a critic. I'm, I'm into contemporary art, but I'm an art historian. I've been trained as an art historian, and I, tra so and, I, yeah. and, and, I and I try to approach contemporary art as an art historian, which is a very diff different position than being a critic. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you see, uh, okay, uh, my question is, uh, an art historian and a critic, they are not the same. No, 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 of course not. Okay, course we not. agree about that. I mean, yeah, 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 we agree on that. We agree, we agree, we agree on that. So, okay. Almost everything, but <laughs> except for Abby Warburg, <laughs> Professor Gombrich. Okay, so, Gombrich <laughs> 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 Okay, can we ask if the audience has anything they want to um, raise? Yes, there's a hand here. Um, I was, I was going to ask uh, a, a specific question to William Kendrick about during the presence of making visual art, drawing or, or painting. Do you find that if uh, you, you can feel memorable or have an idea to have text within that and not a piece of printed or appropriate text, but a, a hand-made piece of text? Um, I, was, I was wondering whether you, you actually feel your brain start clicking with different gear, almost like changing on biases, that, that, um, that there's a certain sort of awkwardness and perhaps tension that just maybe that's what seems different. And, you know, all these questions about handwriting, the, the style of the writing, that, that, that you're somehow quite exposed and that that is really quite a different part of the brain I mean, the, the notes I take for writing or for drawing, and most of the preparatory work for drawings are a series of phrases or notes, um, are handwritten. I don't think on a computer. Um, so they are handwritten, but handwritten notes actually in the drawings are kind of illegible to anyone. Um, the drawings, those red rubrics, those big texts that were painted, were partly to feel I was being productive while I was spending the hours supposedly writing a lecture. And it's depressing to spend three hours sitting at a table and there's nothing to show for it. And here I could think, well, in one way you could just say, okay, after three hours there's a watercolor painting. Of a, the watercolor painting is of a single line of idea. So it's a kind of consolation, a consolation prize in some ways. <laughs> but there is also something then about having 15 texts pasted up on the wall to make you think, all right, there's the start of an idea. One can start letting ideas. So it, it does uh, change. But it certainly is a difference if I would be 
typing something or writing it by hand, and certainly the slow, laborious la writing on a larger scale. I don't know if that answers the question. Okay. Oh, sometimes three days. I'm sure somebody in here has something to do. Yeah. I. This one. Sorry, did I? Sorry, you back again. See, you're two bites of cherry here. Okay, we've got one here, then we'll come back to you. Um, yes, I wanted to bring up something which uh, Shira Hughes mentioned in your introduction. Yeah. And which I felt that um, William addressed slightly, but the other two speakers didn't really touch on, which is this um, uh, reputation, if you like, of letting mm. of the voice as a painting, so it's poetry, dictum. Um, and the way you put it, um, I think you said it's kind of obvious that uh, words are on the side of, of time. Poetry is, is temporal and uh, painting is spatial. Um, but I remember coming, I read that essay several years ago, and I didn't find it obvious at all. And when I looked into it, it turned out there were actually big debates for most of the 20th century yeah. over it. Um, and I just wondered what uh, what the two speakers made of that, and whether that distinction kind of rings true for you, or is it relevant? So the synchronic, diachronic, the space-time yeah. idea. Yeah. I did. Okay. I okay. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I was one of the things that made me start working with animated drawings was the feeling that a drawing was very much a kind of a fixed fact, mm -hmm. like a photograph. It's a fact, and it describes the world as a fact. And what um, cinema does is bring to the forefront the idea of process of transformation of uh, the development of one thing into another as being central to how the world is structured. So you can have a photograph of a tree, you can have a photograph of a table, you can have a photograph of a book, of a fire, and those are all kind of facts. This is the world. There's the book, the fire, the... But within a piece of animation, the natural, you know, it's a completely natural thing to show how a tree becomes a table and the wood pulp becomes the book and they both can get burnt and you end up with ash and it's, you can understand a table is one moment in the process of transformation from tree to ash. Um, which is, so in that sense it's built not just into taking time to show it but into understanding the world as essentially constituted through instability and process. So that, that for me was a reassurance in working with animation. But in fact, temperamentally, animation was great for me because I never knew how to finish a drawing. And animation meant I didn't ever really have to. Everything was provisional. It made an endless kind of provisionality. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it, it kind of rings true to me. Um, but it rings to me in the anxiety of a painting compared to the relax you get into in the images moving for me. I have a question for William. Uh, uh, William, uh, in your work, you have this, let's say, two uh, 
principle or two strategies. One is this appropriation of text, this appropriation doing mm -hmm. collage. But the other, on the other hand, you also have a whole body of work where you, will you work with an author uh, in theater or in opera. Could you say what's the difference? There's a difference for you there? Yeah, I mean, there's an enormous difference that um, if you're working with a piece of theater or particularly with an opera, theater managers are ha more happy for text to be cut up and transformed and jettisoned than opera directors of opera houses are for the music and libretto to be <laughs> treated in the same cavalier way. Um, so it is that there's a given that you're working with. There's a text and there's a text of music. Within that, um, there's a certain, obviously there's a structure given to the shape. You know, it's going to take three hours long, act one will be this long, act two, the, these words will be said in act one. Uh, within that, in the production that I've done, particularly the production of the nose, there's a way in which typography and text comes into the production and the typography and the text is not the same as the text that is being sung the, the whole time. There's also a layer of text for people to understand the words as they're being, mm -hmm. um, as they're being sung. Um, we have yep. a, a question back. You had another question, didn't you? No. Does anybody else want to ask anything? Okay. We'll come back to you, and then we'll go. Oh, no, okay. That. Back, back, back in the next row. Yes. Yes, I mean, I know the, the, um, the dubiousness of my assertion, which is why I followed by saying, really, it's just a question of temperament. I was much happier with the, the movement. Of course, you can't say every animation is about time and no time can exist in a, in a painting. But they exist in different, yeah, in different ways. Why do we have to have a text about a painting? Why don't we allow people to sit and look and I think that because sometimes one is bewildered when you're looking at a picture and there are a whole lot of references and understandings that the artist would have had or that other people, his contemporaries or her contemporaries, might have had. And when you know it, it kind of feels difficult to look at the picture as if you don't know it. When you're just told about it, it's difficult to look at the picture and not only say that, see that. And what the best sort of, the best least bad solution, I think, is the when you have a, a home museum, a, a series of paintings that get more and more familiar over the years. So you've once read the information about it or different things and it, it gets a different kind of presence where you can give it the kind of time, over time, to see the things, but... Yeah. I think so. I think, I mean, it's for Eva to say, but my sense is the text is to try to help an audience Sorry. to spend, you know, not just to glaze past, but... What 
sorry. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Okay. No. I was just, just going to say that I, I think you've made all the things Australia was saying is, is for, for some of us, the process of, of, of working through our understanding of, of the work of art comes through, through using the words to think, think through it. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're just trying to lock it down and translate. Oh, to impose else. it. Or no. to impose it, no, yeah. I, but I have the impression, um, let's take an example, which is at the Prado Museum, which is in, the, in my city. I can go there and, and have a look at the painting every, every now and then. Las Meninas by Velázquez. I mean, if you, you, you look at the painting, and it's so amazing, I mean, you can just look at the painting and be amazed and, and, and love the painting. But little by little, if you start knowing more about the painting, the pleasure is going to be different and I have the impression greater. I have the impression. So I think, you know, I think the idea of having like a small museum, like, I mean, those are the paintings I'm going to read about. I mean, I know I read everything I can about Las Meninas. I've seen Las Meninas so very many times. And the more I read about the painting, the more, you know, intriguing the painting becomes and the greater pleasure I, I get from it. So I think it's a different, I, I fully agree with you. You can't impose uh, on, on the general public or not general, whatever public, you know, the reading of a painting and the explanation of a painting, and this is exactly what William was saying. I mean, and this is what you was resenting. I mean, how can we work in museums so that when people go there, they don't watch the actual, uh, because then it's very, it's very, very often people look at, at, at the text mm. and they don't they look, look at the painting. They look to the work, oh yes. Which is yeah. very, this is like the worst that can happen. But I think the more you read about, uh, a pain, the more you know about an artwork or about anything in, in, in your life probably, the more, the greater pleasure you get. So I think the only thing is to find that, you know, that special, that space, which is probably like a Sixus and in between, where you're not imposing and at the same time you're helping getting that bigger pleasure, that greater pleasure, have that impression. No. Right. Okay. okay, question here. Yes. Sometimes I have some words, not but she was a 
be very interesting to have a, uh, an exhibition where a painting could be by a circular donation and then have the reproduction in another space with lots of description and explanation. But there's, uh, I think there is uh, something that is related to the, uh, the way uh, the Western culture is based on the word, you know, so we create codes and these codes are written, you know, so we, <laughs> we tend to believe in the words, but we don't believe in what we see. No, we have a difficulty with that, you know. And also, I think as a curator, uh, many times I, I, I writing about contemporary art, and uh, despite I disagree, uh, I would disagree, I agree with her on the point that uh, every writing is an autobiography because it's a, it's a fiction about yourself, so it's you, you project there, but there is this demand of the authority of the curator to say that what you are seeing is right or wrong. It's because we have this very Manichaean perspective of everything it has to be black and white, good or bad, uh, right or wrong, you know. And also this idea of that art is much more open than, than this, all these mm -hmm. things, you know. So it's like, a, it's exactly that, they, they push the limits of things, you know. They provoke you to cross something. Um, I think, even though I think there are some yeah. other questions here, we've, we've sort of, sorry, one yeah. last one, and then, then we're going to, um, then we're, we're out of time after that. So one last question. It occurs to me that the most significant piece of text on pictures in a gallery is the name of the artist. <laughs> 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 I've often wondered, this is what I'd ask you, ask you, how differently wouldn't we observe and pictures in a gallery if we did not know who the artist was? We might run past the Rembrandts in order to look at something else if we didn't know they were Rembrandts. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Oh. Very good Very point. Good point. I think I think that's an excellent way to end because I don't I don't think anyone has a comeback on that at all. Um, can I just um, thank um, our speakers for very stimulating uh, talks and also for getting so nicely involved in polite dis discussion, <laughs> even where disagreement came up. And thank you to the audience as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, thank you guys.